was always meant to be a wild crazy adventure discovering the thrill the rush the more of you i see the more it leaves me wanting your everything My message this morning is entitled, Alone with God. And for this, I want you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 32. Genesis, chapter 32, beginning at verse 22. And we are coming, really, to the climax of a whole series of chapters from Genesis that to describe the the vicissitudes of this man's life, Jacob. But let me tell you, he is my hero, because I can identify with him. Abraham, yep, I know he's our father. Uh, great father of the faithful, amazing man, all the things that Abraham did, and he kind of intimidates me a little bit. Then when I get to Isaac, what a great man. I mean, he had patience. I mean, digging all those wells, redigging those wells, never losing his cool. Great, great man of patience. But then we come to good old crooked Jacob. When I see Jacob up there with Abraham and Isaac, I think there's hope for me and hope for all of us that God can take a crooked guy, more crooked than a corkscrew, straighten him out and make him in the top three. I think that's absolutely amazing. It's hope for all of us. We're going to see how God finally got through to this man. Genesis 32, verse 22. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jake, Jacob asked, saying, 
tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, the man who ministered here in London with everything short of revival itself, that's if it wasn't revival. When we look at his funeral, the people that came out on the streets at his funeral were in proportion to the population of London of that time, exactly the same amount of people who were out for Lady Diana for the Princess of Wales funeral. Such a popular man, they called him the Prince of Preachers. And this is what he said about solitude. He said, there are times when solitude is better than society, and silence is wiser than speech. I want to ask you a question this morning. When was the last time you were alone with God? I mean, deliberately consciously alone with God. No distractions, no diversions. Mobile phone turned off and in another room. Your computer, iPad, television, landline, all disconnected. Your to-do list out of sight. Television, radio, MP3 player, all switched off. I believe we would be better Christians if we spent more time alone with God when our hearts are completely stilled, when we are separated and distanced from all distractions, all interruptions, all diversions, all entertainments, waiting upon God, meditating on His Word, His character, His promises, basking in His presence and gathering spiritual strength so that we can be renewed and serve Him more effectively. Over this week, I want to thank you for the, the cards and good wishes that have come in. And there's been a recurring theme as people have given me a verse. The verse of Scripture, the most popular verse of Scripture that people have passed on to me at this great epoch of my life. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall rise up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I thank God that it goes on to say even young men shall grow weary. So it's not an old person's thing alone. And um, thank you for praying for me. And that's exactly what is happening. But it only happens when you really and truly wait upon the Lord. It's funny because it's like an active thing but it's passive at the same time. You have to still your heart. Now, a lot of people find themselves alone in an unwelcome way. Uh, here in London, we are living in the biggest city in, in Britain, and there are millions of people around us. They tell us we see in London more people each day 
than the people in the Middle Ages saw in their lifetime. We can be in a big crowd, but lonely and alone. We can be shut up in our bedsitter, our tiny apartment, without any contact with people for hours, and sometimes people living on their own for days. I'm not talking about that kind of loneliness. I'm talking about the kind of aloneness that is deliberate. When you have a purpose, and your purpose is to wait on God. Normally speaking, we should not think of ourselves as being alone. For we are part of the Christian community. I'm not talking about the isolationism, which is a 21st century disease, uh, and a, another related disease is individualism, and that is self-assertion where the individual is king, and uh, we are always asserting ourselves, our rights, ourselves, uh, individualism, Jesus is my pastor, you can't tell me what to do, I hear God as well as you do, and I'm living my own life, and nobody can talk to me about anything, and nobody can can confront me or anything. No, I'm not talking about that kind of thing. In the kingdom of God, we are a community, and we need each other, and we have each other. We care for each other. We share with each other. We encourage each other. We provoke one another to love and good deeds. We witness and evangelize together as a community. And this is what the cell vision is all about. It gives you a platform, a structure, by which you can express your togetherness every day of the week with connect, connected with other members of the same expression of the body of Christ. So I'm not talking about isolationism or individualism, but I'm talking about a form of solitude in which you discover who you really are. And you never really know who you are until you really get alone with God. And that's where all true business is transacted. All true business in life can only be effectively conducted when you are alone with God. What does it mean to be alone with God? See, Jacob deliberately, self-consciously got alone with God. Did you pick that up in the text? First of all, he, he, he dismissed uh, the, the crowds around him. Then he took all his possessions and sent them ahead. Then he took his family, his relatives, his friends, and sent them ahead. So he was left alone. And it's where it's just you and God in the secret of your heart. All else is stripped away, all clutter removed. No background noise of the mind, no stress, no straining of human effort, just waiting on Him, resting in Him. No program, no agenda of self, no goal of getting, no drivenness, no undercurrent of human desires or motivation, just communing with God in that secret place, that part of you which is designed exclusively for Him. That secluded garden of your soul, the holy of holies of your heart, where all is solitariness until God comes to meet with you. 
And in that place, you learn to settle for nothing less than God himself. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Here in this secret place, there are no substitutes, no alternatives, no supports to prop up your soul, no supplements, no additives, just pure communion with the Holy One, just God and you. After all, this is your true purpose. Did you know that? You were created by God and for God, and you will never discover who you are. You will never come into the experience of peace and satisfaction, fulfillment, until you realize that you were made for God, and God wants to fellowship with you. There is, after all, only one God, and therefore he must be exclusively worshipped. Only one God who is to be worshipped, loved, and served exclusively. This is put so well in one of the most popular and well-known of all the Jewish prayers in the, in the liturgy of Judaism known as the Shema. And that is based on Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 and 5 say this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Think of this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. This is about relationship. That God is one. There is only one God. As Christians, we are uncompromising monotheists. We are total monotheists. Don't think that the Trinity means there are three gods. Of course not. There is only one God who is eternal and indivisible in his essence and his nature. Yes, he also eternally exists in three persons, but there is only one God. The Lord is one, which means he has exclusive rights to your devotion, to your worship, and your service. So Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 goes on to say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And this is reiterated in the Ten Commandments, way back there in Exodus chapter 20. Verses 1 through 17 give us all the Ten Commandments, and this is how it begins, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Can you see, it all begins with God's action, God's intervention, God breaking into our lives, coming down to where we are to rescue us, to take us, that we might be a special treasure for Him, that we might worship Him exclusively. That's why the first commandment says this, Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. God is saying, I am the only God, and I claim exclusive rights of worship because 
I am who I am. You shall have no other gods before me. And this is what the heart of worship is. That's who you should worship. Worship the one God with all of your heart. Then verse 4 gives the second commandment, which tells us how to worship. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So when we are alone with God, we strip away everything, everything that distracts, everything that competes for our attention, our affection, anything that calls for us for action other than God himself. All the demands of self, all the demands of other people, the demands of our consumer society, the demands of the program of our lives that people have mapped out for us. We put all that on one side and we rest at the foot of the throne of God and remember that it is He, not us, who are on that throne. And I think that is the heart of idolatry. It's not putting something else in place of God, it boils down to this, we put ourselves in the place of God. So we see God sitting on the throne, and we say, God, would you please get off my chair? You're sitting in my seat. I am the one who's in control of my life. That's my dignity, that's my right. I am a self-determining human being. But it's the, it's the heart of idolatry and rejection because we fail to worship the one true God, put ourselves in place, then we start manipulating idols in order to keep us on that throne. Romans chapter 1 tells this story, and we're going to read a little bit. If we go on to the rest of the chapter, we'll be here till lunchtime and we'll be pretty depressed. And the fact is, it is God's indictment upon every heart, every human heart, and every society that has ever been. And, and this is what he says, and but let's come at it from the positive angle that Paul approaches it from because Paul is saying, do you know I'm so excited about the gospel? The gospel is the good news. The gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. And I can't wait to come and preach the gospel in Rome. And then he actually begins to give a description of his gospel. And, and amongst other things, what he achieves in the book of Romans is an exposition of the story of God's love for all mankind and how he works it out and how it operates and all that God has done for us. But, but to get Paul going, he just has to think about the righteousness of God which is revealed, that free gift of righteousness in which God brings us into a relationship with himself against this horrendous background. And here's the background. Romans 1 verse 18, he says, for the wrath of God what is God's wrath? God's wrath is His righteous reaction to sin. It is the reaction of a holy God. And if God is going to react to anything, He's going to react to the fact that we put ourselves in His place on the throne. When Jesus died, He took our place on the cross so that He could have, once again, His rightful place upon the throne of our lives. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, present tense, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So he's saying the first thing was that we didn't acknowledge God to be God. I think that is the heart of what it means to be saved and to walk with Jesus Christ, is once again to acknowledge this fact, the revelation, and it's a staggering revelation, and be ready for it. In fact, you better fasten your seatbelts today. Here it is. God is God. No, He really is. Not you, not me. God is God. He owns your life. And His rightful place is to be glorified on the throne of your heart. And that's more than singing with three chords on a guitar. He is Lord, He is Lord, He's risen from the dead, and He is Lord. It's far more than three chords on a guitar. It's about the whole of your life geared around, focused around this amazing revelation and realization which you practically experience and walk out in your daily life. God is the Lord, and the Lord is God. So we don't glorify Him as God, but the need to glorify is still there. So what do we glorify? We exchange the glory of God for idolatrous things. These kind of things that where we get our meaning from, not from God, but something else. Where we get our security from, not from God, but something else. Where we get our sense of satisfaction and joy from, where we get our purpose from, not from God, but from something else. A career, a, a certain bank account that we are dreaming about, that we will have one day driving a certain car, when he talks about four-footed animals and creeping things, he might also talk about four-wheeled vehicles and rolling things, whether it is cars or clothes or money or relationships or pleasure, whatever else it is. If it is not God and we are deriving our satisfaction and, and focusing on these things, it is an idol. It's idolatry. And it, it is coming between you and God. And God wants you today to strip these things away so it really is just you and God. And to begin with, it's a very lonely place until he comes. And Jacob was left alone, full stop. Then a man came and wrestled. That must have been the longest period of his life. For the first time in decades, he'd stopped running around, clamoring about, trying to wheel and deal and cheat and steal and do everything that he, in his power to do, to get himself where he wanted to be. He just said, God, it's got to be you or nothing. 
So first there's this rejection, this suppression of truth, and we still resist it. The moment we actually disagree with God, the moment we say, yes, it's all very well for you to say that, God, but we are suppressing the truth. We reject the revelation of God rather than surrendering to it. Then we assert ourselves and we put ourselves on the throne. And thirdly, we start to use these idolatrous means as a way of propping up the kingdom of self. We find substitutes for God so that we can feel good and function well and get what we want in life. And read the rest of Romans. It's downhill from there on. Let me ask you a question today. In fact, a whole series of questions. What are your idols one way of answering that question is to ask yourself, where do you find refuge? Where do you find safety, comfort, security? What's your way out? What's your escape? Is it people? Possessions? Success? Status, sensual pleasures, sex, food, drink. A lot of people find relief through self-medication. Toxic substances, mind and mood-altering substances, drugs, alcohol, stimulants, sugar, caffeine, Nicotine, nothing sacred today. We could ask the questions another way. We could say, what are the stage props that you use in the performance of self? Like a kind of stage, a theater. You are a starring role in your own production. What are the stage props that you use to enhance your performance? performance of self? Or what are the strategies in self-assertion? You can go on courses, usually humanistically based, and most people in business and industry are duty-bound to go on all these humanistic courses where you practice self-assertion and confidence and how to sell better and, and, uh, and all this kind of stuff. And Strategies in the assertion of self, and when we apply that to, to daily life, we have a whole string of strategies which we use, which are often manipulative, controlling, dominating, to make sure that self stays at the forefront. It, they're the kind of tactics that we use in this tyrannical reign of self. All of these are the idolatrous strategies. We're breaking the second commandment every day when we are pursuing those objectives in that way. Well, Jacob had had enough of it all. His story. Well, the Bible shows how that when Abraham was old, his time was, was coming to an end, he took everything that he had and gave everything to Isaac. Isaac was the promised child of inheritance. Not Ishmael, Isaac. Isaac got the lot. And then Isaac also prospered. God prospered. So we've got Abraham's wealth, Isaac's wealth, all 
stored up, all prospering, and we've got two boys, twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the firstborn. He popped out first. His brother was literally hard on his heels. And what was happening? Rebecca said, you know, Something's going on when she was pregnant, when she was expecting these twins. She felt a struggle going on, and she asked God about it. And God said, there are two babies in your womb representing two nations, and they're fighting, and they're struggling. And the, here, the outcome is this. The older, the elder shall serve the younger. And the elder was Esau. And when Esau came out, they found Jacob grabbing hold of Esau's, even then, say, you're not getting out first. I'm getting out first. Me first. Me first. Me first. But it was not his birthright. So he said, I'm going to get that birthright, while whatever it takes. So he cooked up both a stew and a plan. The stew was part of the plan. His brother went out hunting, came back, you know, obviously starving hungry. And just at the right place, at the edge of the forest, he set up a little camp. Nice campfire and cooked the most wonderful lentil stew. And the aroma of the stew wafted in the direction of Esau. And Esau was led quite literally by the nose to the stew. He said, oh, hello, brother. Give me some of your stew. No, I didn't make it for you. Oh, I'm starving. Give me. No, no, no. Okay, I'll give it to you. One condition. Sell me your birthright. You must be joking. No, sell me your birthright. I'll give you some stew. What good is my birthright if I'm going to die of hunger? So he sold him his birthright. And the Bible says in that way Esau despised his birthright. But the, the matter wasn't settled yet because they still needed the blessing of Isaac. Isaac is getting old. He's, he's, he's going to die. It's any day now. So Rebecca says, quick, your father is getting ready to pass on the blessing to Esau. So this is what you've got to do. You've got to put on Esau's clothes. You've got to pretend to be Esau. Put on some animal skins because Esau was a hairy man. And go into your father. That's what he did. Went into his father. His father says, you sound like... Jacob, you smell like Esau. Are you really Jacob? Are you really, are you really Esau? Yes, I'm Esau. So Isaac gives him the blessing. Now this isn't, bless you, my son. This is, this is definitive. This is God's promise being communicated, being the inheritance being communicated in a way that was totally irrevocable. It was like writing out the will and signing it there and then. So Jacob disappears and then along comes Esau and, and discovers that his brother has tricked him. And from that moment onwards, Esau saw Jacob in another way. Esau saw him before. And then the father is dying, so the mother says, you better get the heaven out of here because as soon as your father goes, Esau is going to have your life. I'll tell you what you do. Go back to the land of our forefathers and my brother Laban is waiting for you there, your uncle. He'll take care of you. 
Oh, yes, he did. When Jacob got to Laban, he discovered if Jacob was a crook, Laban was a double crook. <laughs> and now Jacob starts to get the experience of what it's like to be cheated all the time. His wages are changed, cheated out of this and cheated out of that. He fell in love with this beautiful woman, Rachel. So I want that girl. You can have her seven years' work. Okay, seven years' work. He gets her. And then in the morning, wakes up, and they switched him to the older sister, the ugly one. She's there. <laughs> I, I, I would just love to have a replay of that it, the morning after. Ah! Who are you? So he has to serve another seven years. For, for, for Rachel after all of that. And then wages tricked. And finally, God is blessing him. But it's hard. It's difficult. He's not enjoying a bit of it. He says, I've got to get out of this place. I've got to go back home and take up my inheritance. But to do this, he's got to meet Esau. And Esau is still out to get him. So that's what happens. Now... He's on the border of the land. His brother is on the way. And he is determined, Jacob is determined to face up to this situation. This was, for many years and right up to this moment, still was the single greatest issue of his life. So often, in your life and my life, there are single issue factors that we need to deal with. And until we deal with it, forget it. What is it with you? It might be a weakness. It might be a bondage in your life. Bondage for bondage, read favorite sin I don't want to give up. Something that is controlling you. Not always, but often. It's one thing. It might be a weakness. It might be a tendency in your life. And God is saying, I want you to face up with this. Face up to this. And today's the day, ladies and gentlemen, to be alone with God and conquer your fear. Face your nemesis. Jacob did. The one thing that stood between him and possessing in the promised land was this broken relationship with his brother and all his scheming and conniving and fleshly effort to get where he wanted to be. But he wanted to return to Canaan now, put everything right, and take the blessing. But he had a lifetime of lying and cheating and conniving, and that was getting in the way of his birthright. But now this was a defining moment. It was going to be everything or nothing. It was going to be God or nothing. And so Jacob strips everything away, all distractions, everything, including his own lying, dodging, ducking, weaving, conniving approach to life. And he says, this is the end. This is the end of my striving. Desperate to meet with God. And a man came to wrestle with him. We know from the text that... that this angel, which is none other than the face of God, it would be none other than the person of Jesus Christ in Old Testament form, coming to speak to him, and uh, they're wrestling. Now, what is the real battle here? 
The angel said, you've wrestled with God, you've struggled with God, you've struggled with man, and you've prevailed. But the truth is, he was never struggling with God. He wasn't struggling with people. He wasn't struggling with God. He was struggling with himself. And he keeps on struggling and struggling. As I won't let you go until you bless me. Good. That's a good statement of faith. But it's not about struggling and wrestling and trying to wrench something from God. If only you knew how much God wants to bless you. It was a done deal. His mother had a word from the Lord. The elder shall serve the younger. You are going to be blessed. You're going to inherit. It's going to be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not Esau. But he was still striving in his own strength, trying to make it happen. And the blessing only came when he couldn't do any more to help himself and had to depend entirely on God. You know, when we were doing our rescue diving training, uh, it's all about emergency first response. Uh, if any of you ever get into any trouble, I can come and rescue you, but I'd have to throw you in the water first. And um, there are certain techniques that you have to use. You're swimming up to somebody, they're drowning, they're panicking. And the last thing you do is swim up in front of them and say, hello, I'm here. They see you as the only bit of dry land between them and death. <laughs> and so they jump on you and take you down with them. So I'd have to do two things, one of two things. One, wait until they're so exhausted that they're just at the point of sinking and then they haven't any strength to struggle which is rather cruel, or the other techniques when you swim underwater, flick them around and get them in a position where they can no longer do themselves or you no harm, can no longer do any harm. That's what I see here. But Jacob was so persistent, the angel had to finally say, you're not going to let me go, you're not going to get this message, so I'm going to give it to you the hard way. Touched his hip. And his hip was out of joint. Now, funnily enough, I woke up this morning with quite a sharp pain <laughs> here in my hip. So, do you know what, people? You don't know what us preachers have to go through just to bring you the Word of God every Sunday. But I've done some stretching, and I can, I can walk straight. But not this morning. And that reminded me in a very small way. It's just, it's just a sore muscle after, you know, eating, doing a little bit too much exercise. <laughs> but just in that small way, you realize what a powerful joint, this hip joint is, how strong it is. Double compassion for anybody who's ever got any hip, hip problem. If you've got hip problems now, just take your healing in Jesus' name. But you can't stand. You can't walk. And Jacob walked with a stick from that moment onwards. But he got the message. He was a broken man. And all he could do was lean on God. That's what I mean when I say alone with God. So desperate was he that he met with, to meet with God. And he met with God, kept on striving 
in God's presence, wrestling. It was all unnecessary. All he had to do, I won't let you go till you bless me. God had already said it. It was a done deal. Just receive, don't strive. Just receive. It's a funny business, this Christian life business. Because just when you think you're doing what you should be doing, you'll be told, don't do anything. Rest. When you sit back and let God, you think, and God says, come on, what are you doing? Get up and do something. It's an active passive. This is very hard to describe, but it is total dependence on God. But you are active in the whole process. You are part of the process. But it's, it's not that you're doing it in your own strength. The Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We do the doing, but it's God who does the enabling. And so the end of striving, because he was broken, he was exhausted, he couldn't do anymore. And all he could do now was yield, rest, and lean on God. And this is the picture we get of him. Hebrews 11, verse 21. Let that come up on the screen. Hebrews 11, 21. And we're fast-forwarding now to the end of Jacob's life, and the story goes, and Joseph has gone into, into slavery, and now he's become the big prince in Egypt, and, and, and so on. And, and, and uh, then he now uh, rescues the, all of his, his father and his brothers, and they're now living in Egypt, and everything is fine, and Jacob is coming to the end of his life. Hebrews 11:21. this is what Hebrews says of him. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. He'd been leaning for how many decades now since that encounter in Peniel. And I see it with the, my mind's eye so vivid. The morning sun greets Jacob as he limps over the top of the hill, leaning on his staff. And he never stopped leaning. He'd learnt his lesson. Leaning on the top of his staff. Worshipped. Leaning. He, we're back in order now. God has his rightful place. He is worshipped for who he is. Musicians, you can come back now because we're going to worship before we finish today. Leaning on his staff, depending on God. A broken man, no longer striving in his own strength, but trusting in God. Where do you need to trust him today? And in order to trust him, you've got to get rid of everything that you're holding on to. Somebody said to me, the definition of an atheist, an atheist is a person who has no invisible means of support. Now, you'll have to think about that. Most of us depend on visible means. Something that we can touch, something that we can hold, and that's what we depend on. We find it very difficult to depend on the invisible means of support. It takes a great deal of faith. It takes a great deal of courage. People say, your Christianity is a crutch. Well, it's not a crutch because a crutch is visible. It's an invisible support structure. It's a relationship with the invisible God by faith. And it takes all the 
faith in the world sometimes to do nothing but wait on God. Because when you wait on Him, you give Him the opportunity to be God. And that's the big revelation you take away from the service. God is God. And when you say, when you try and sort it all out and work it all out, God says, get on with it. But when you say, God, I strip all this away, it's got to be you or nothing. God, I want you to come into this situation. What is it with you? Is it that single issue thing that is holding you back? Or is it that single greatest need in your life that you are saying, God, without you meeting this need in this way, my life is over? God says, I'll tell you when your life is over. I am good enough for you. Take everything else out of the picture and be satisfied with me. And there in that secret place, alone with God, when you're leaning on Him and trusting Him with 100% total dependence, then, and only then, are you worshiping Him and serving Him as you're called to do so. So it's time, people of God, to get alone with Him. Let's pray just before we worship some more. Father, we want to thank you for all the good things that you've given to us. And we know that you are the God who loves to give all good things to us richly in abundance that we might enjoy them. You are the great provider. Thank you for all of the friendships and relationships, for our housing, our homes, our means and modes of transport, our clothes, our food. We thank you for all of the stuff that you give to us. But we know, Lord, that Without you, none of this means anything. And so we consciously take our dependence off these things and lean on you. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us so many gifts and abilities and you call upon us to exercise those, to develop those, and to, to be active. But in all our activity and busyness, we choose not to forget you and certainly not depend on our fleshly efforts, but to lean on you. And in that place, we learn to worship you for who you are. Take your rightful place in our hearts, we pray. Amen.